Welcome to Teachers Talk Texts, the podcast where English teachers share their insights and interpretations of texts currently studied in BCE English. I'm your host, Claire Mackey. Let's dive into today's episode. Hi everyone and welcome to today's episode discussing the women of Troy with Danny, who can be found on Instagram at Teaching the VCE. This is the third episode I've recorded on the Women of Troy, and if you have listened to previous ones, you'll note that it's really different to those that came before. Every time I chat with someone about this text, or indeed any text, the conversation is different, which I hope will empower students to think broadly about the text they are studying and feel confident that there's not one right answer. This episode was recorded earlier in the year when I was recovering from a cold, so I apologize for the husky voice. I have kept it on the back burner until now, and I'm really excited to share it with you. If you do enjoy this conversation, I would love for you to support me via buying me a virtual coffee. In the interest of full disclosure, I probably won't spend your donation on coffee. It'll go towards funding the continuation of this podcast and hopefully a new microphone so I can have even better sound quality. There's a link in the show notes you can click on to donate or the link is in my bio on Instagram at Teachers Talk Texts. Now to the show. Danny, thank you so much for joining me on Teachers Talk Text to talk about the women of Troy. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad you're excited because I think it's nice to be excited about Euripides, really. He he is actually an incredibly exciting playwright and hopefully that's what we'll be chatting about tonight. I'm just going to jump straight in and ask you my first question, which is what is it that you love about the women of Troy? It's an interesting place to start, isn't it? This idea of like, what do we love about this tragedy, this text that's known for being sad, that's known for being challenging, something I'm teaching at the moment. My students sometimes said like, this needs a trigger warning. This is pretty full on. So that idea of what is it I love about it as a teacher And the thing that I think I love about it is maybe twofold. So it's like the practicalities of teaching it, but also, I guess, like the message or the idea that's inherent in the text. And I suppose like the thing that I love most about this text is that even though it is running the full gamut of human experience, especially negative human experience, there's a lot of traumatic and distressing things that happen to the characters that inhabit this play. I think the thing that I love most about it is that one of the things that you can take away from it is that it's also, it's the celebration of women. It's a celebration of the voiceless in society that have been so often ignored or removed away from history. So this is an opportunity to really get into the experiences of people that have been lost over the, over thousands and thousands of years that are still lost from, t- from the record today. And I also love the fact, as I said, that it's a celebration of women. And I think it's also when you scratch a little bit deeper into the play that for all of the suffering that the characters endure, it's also a celebration of resilience and human experience and the fact that even though we can have awful things occur to us, that there still is methods and ways for people to be resilient, to endure, to be strong. 
Yeah. And I think just in terms of practically teaching it in the classroom, I really enjoy the fact that this is, it sounds a bit silly, but I enjoy the fact that this is a short play. It's something that we can come together in a classroom. We can read aloud together. We can share the experience of actually physically sitting there and reading this play one-on-one as opposed to something like a novel or a collection of short stories, for example. This is short. It's intimate. It's something that we can share together all in the same space. I like that and I agree the idea that a text that you could actually read aloud with your students in year 12 is a special one I think. It is yeah Mm. like we all love being read to we all love and this comes out of the oral tradition the women of Troy it comes out of the idea of human beings being storytellers and what better way to experience that in a classroom being able to read it and share it together. I agree I agree it's interesting that you approach it too with this idea of what is it that we love about a play that is as you said very traumatic and (laughs) possibly depressing (laughs) it is depressing and you're right it actually probably does need a trigger warning if they were going to put it on television likely legally or whatever it would it would need one because of the very dark ideas that it engages with and we find this a lot in English texts I think they often explore the dark side of of human experience yeah and that's I mean and this is a big question to you but why is that important like and maybe this is coming from and I'm thinking as I'm going here honestly because this is what I do I just kind of don't think before I speak but a lot of the conversations that I've had on this podcast about the texts that are currently being studied on the year 12 text list come back to this idea that they do explore very dark elements of of humanity yeah why is that important so I think that the reason why that's important and I'm I'm an English teacher I get this question all the time and I'm also a literature teacher so I'm getting it from two classes at the moment the common thing like Danny why are we studying this depressing book or like why do teachers always set these stories that make us miserable and I think that When we read literature or when we read a novel or when we read a text, you know, or even if we watch a film, we're searching to be entertained, we're searching to find something that holds our interest. But I guess as an English and a literature teacher and someone that loves literature, for me, the primary business of literature is that it enables us to explore the whole spectrum of human experience and so by the whole spectrum I'm talking about love joy I'm talking about misery passion the darkest of lows the highest of highs and that's the business of literature and I also think that sitting alongside that the whole spectrum of human experience literature offers us a relatively safe environment where we can explore some of these difficult subjects where we can talk about morality where we can be faced with things which in a visual medium might require a trigger warning but literature allows us a safe opportunity to explore these complex things and I think that that is why as English teachers and why VCAR set these texts that often come with weighty themes and weighty ideas. It's not coming from a place that worthy literature has to be depressing. It's actually, I think, more coming from a place where 
we recognize the fact that our students, particularly in the year 11 and year 12 age bracket, mm. they're becoming adults. They have already experienced a lifetime of different emotions, different experiences. And what better way to help us process, discuss and explore than by literature? Women of Troy is a perfect example of that. You could look at this text and go like, this was created thousands of years ago. What can it possibly have to say that students in 2021 English classes are going to connect to? Likewise, a Dickens or an Austen or a classic text. What do these old stories have to do with anything? And I mm-hmm. suppose another point of literature why we study these weighty, difficult things is there's connection there. Like one of my favourite stories is David Copperfield and it describes the narrator of it, David Copperfield, talking about how he was, as a child, he felt anxious or he felt depressed. And I remember reading it and part of the reason I liked it is I was like, you know, This author wrote this novel 150 years ago and he's perfectly describing an emotion that I've experienced. And I think that's one of the things about literature as well. It connects us to the past. It connects us to one another. And I think that's the lofty ideal of setting these texts. Very, uh, very, not just insightful, but I feel like the way that you speak about literature conveys the depth of the of the passion that you have for mm. our subjects. And I really, I like that, that idea that we can see ourselves represented on the page. Yeah. Even though, like, as you said, years and years and years have gone by, I only just recently was discussing Pride and Prejudice, which is another yeah. text written in 1813, or at least published in 1813. And yet you've got all these relationships and miscommunication and people being too prideful and then I see updates about Married at First Sight happening and I think, well, there's a lot of pride there, there's a lot of miscommunication, there's a lot of prejudice being held. Actually, Austin was talking about issues that, like you said, are are still relevant today. I think Very that's true. what the greats do, like your Austin, your Euripides, whomever you want to bring into it, your greats tap into that full spectrum of human experience and they convey it through their poems or their plays or their novels and the generations that come after, we read it and we're like, I recognise myself in this because I understand, I get it, yeah. Yes, I agree. So follow-up question to you, mm-hmm. is there a character that you see yourself in a bit in the women of Troy is there a character you find affinity with or that you especially enjoy kind of breaking down you could probably say that I identify with all of them in some way shape or form like who among us and I'm probably apologies for anyone listening to this I know I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of some of these names but I just say as long as you can spell them I don't care. I know. I'm so, I say this to my kids, Tom, like, it's okay. Like, who among us hasn't felt like it's healthibious, right? We have had to go along with what our bosses told us to do. And we're like, oh, I might not agree with this, but I've got to do this. Who among us hasn't been a Helen wanting to seek out new adventures or feeling caught up in something you can't get out of? Or likewise, like I know we we're just talking at the beginning here about being mothers, but that idea of being Andromache, like the love that you have for a child experiencing that. Yeah. Hecuba, losing things that are great, like of great importance to you, losing your status, losing someone that you love. I think that all of the characters are incredibly rich, but I suppose like tonight, maybe the one that I would identify most with is probably Andromache. I think, again, one of the powerful things about literature is 
the different experiences you go through or the different ages that you become, your experience of text can become richer or become slightly different. So like the first time I remember reading The Women of Troy was when I was in year 12 myself, like I did it in our classical studies of society class. And so I do remember reading it as a 17 year old and I was struck by some of the sadness of the play and some of the suggested violence in it. But now rereading it after having my two kids, the reason why I identify with Andromache is just the sheer horror and the sheer, it's almost indescribable, but the sheer horror and fear of having something awful happen to your child or having something happen to your child that you can't protect them from. Mm. I think that I, as a mom, now connect in with that experience a lot, that fear that you have of something happening to your child and what if I can't protect them? I yeah. absolutely, I absolutely agree. I think, in fact, that that scene where where apologies again for my pronunciation. I was it Astyanax. Astyanax? I, I say Astyanax. Yeah. Astyanax. Yeah. If when Astyanax is taken from her, yeah, and her her reflection. The, the thing that really uh, hits home for me with Andromache is she says basically. I did everything I was meant to do. I yeah. followed the rules as a woman. Yeah. yeah. And yet here I am in this situation with my husband dead, with my child imminent, basically imminent yeah. murder and yeah. being forced to be enslaved to the, the, the man that killed my husband yeah. or the, the, the son of the man who killed the my son. The son, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this question to the audience, I feel like that she poses and going, well, what? This is so incredibly unfair. I think yeah, I've women, done it all. Mm, and I think that is a question that women and maybe arguably men too, young women, men and women might be asking themselves, as especially as they're in, going through this process of dealing with corona and the implications that that's had. It's something completely outside of their control. It is impacting year 12, university job prospects there's a whole lot of ramifications that we probably won't see for a while yet about yeah the economic implications for different generations and that feeling of frustration going but this is not I did everything I was meant to do yeah yeah and it kind of connects back into that original question isn't it like the business of literature I think that Euripides is making that very strong suggestion that that is life like sometimes you are the victor sometimes you're the victim sometimes things go your way sometimes they do not go your way but the unavoidable fact is that as a human being that lives through life horrible things might befall you like Andromache losing her husband losing her homeland losing her son like these are obviously quite extreme negative things that are happening to a character and but I think that there is that, that is an aspect of this play to consider that idea that part of the human experience is that we suffer profound loss, we can suffer from profound sadness, just as we suffer from joy and excitement and pleasure. And yeah, like who can't identify with that, whether it's COVID, whether it's the prospect of losing a loved one. Mm, I agree. I think I was reading too that, because I think we, we, the, the default reading of this play is, is to look at this criticism of war. And I, and I don't think that, I think that's very valid. And I, maybe we can come back to that. But I feel like we've, we've actually started a little bit to the side, which I like. And I did read somewhere that part of what Euripides is doing through the stories of these women who, through no fault of their own, and despite the fact that they subscribed to the social norms, they did as they were told, they listened to the gods, end up with these horrible outcomes. 
Mm-hmm. Part of what Euripides is doing is warning the audience. I don't want to say against complacency. I'm worried that's the wrong word now I say it out loud. But to not assume that just because things are one way now that they couldn't later change. It can flip like that idea of the gods are capricious. Sometimes they will protect you. More often than not, they're going to ignore you. So like, yeah, absolutely. I agree with your point there. And I also think that Euripides is sort of suggesting this idea to his original audience because we think contextually, and I'm not a history teacher, this is just what I've read, like we know at the time that there was warfare happening, that the Greeks did, they did do this. Like they they went into war with neighbouring communities. They enslaved, they slaughtered. All of these things were real and happening at the time. So, like, it's very interesting that Euripides is, if you think of his original audience, he's putting this story down in front of them and he doesn't really overtly come out with, like, many judgments. And I think that's one of the purposes of the play to kind of put it down and go, okay, so this is what happened. This is how they feel. This is what's, this is what's occurring. Now, what do you audience member think about this? Like, where's your morality? How much are you going to accept? And like, also, I think to his original audience and to us as well, now reading it in 2021, this idea of just how comfortable are you? Like, okay, the Greeks may have won this war, but we all know what's going to happen to those same Greeks as soon as they board the ship. Most mm. of them are going to drown. They're never going to make it home because they displease the capricious gods yet again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And was it worth it? Yeah. I feel is another question that is being asked there. It's interesting you, you mentioned earlier, like haven't we all been a Helen? And in in all honesty, my initial reaction was, I have not. How dare you? How dare you? But no, no. Not the face that launched a thousand ships. (laughs) Well, obviously that's, no, obviously that's me, but not all betrayed someone perhaps for a secret desire. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's, that's, that's actually not such an unfair thing to, to say. Well, doesn't it depend on your interpretation of Helen? Like I find her a fascinating character because she is the scapegoat of the play. But when you read some of her speeches, she has like many arguments as to why she shouldn't be to blame for this. And it comes down to your interpretation of her. Perhaps she is just a poor victim of the goddesses. Perhaps she is just a victim of um, Paris that wanted to grab her and she had to go along with the whole thing. I don't know. But he certainly, everybody certainly does present a fully realised character. He does. He does. I think part of the hard thing in acknowledging her perspective is that we're positioned, I think, to believe Hecuba because we've known her for so long and we've emotionally connected with her. So it almost gives her an unfair advantage over Helen in that debate that they Mm -hmm. have. But you're right. She does have an answer for everything. That's her superpower, I think. (laughs) Absolutely. and the other thing, the, the only thing that kind of just irritates me a little bit about, about the criticisms of Helen is that this play, as you mentioned when we, when we first started our conversation, I wrote down here, it's a celebration of women and the voiceless, and yet there's a, a female character that is depicted or can be read in a very unflattering manner. And mm-hmm. I think, oh, no, does that, does that almost discredit the plight of the Trojan women if Helen is seen as this kind of 
conniving, hypersexualized woman who utilizes whatever power she has, which is sexual power, to get what yeah. she wants. Possibly. I think it's that is a really interesting idea, this like how we view Helen, because when I say it's a celebration of women, it's a celebration of many different types of women. Like we've mentioned Andromache, she perhaps represents the the female, the, the, the version of the wife that would have been celebrated by both the Greek audiences and perhaps modern day audiences as well. Like she's the good wife, she's the good mother, she does everything right, she does the rules. And you flick it over and you've got old Helen that's probably the opposite of that. But Helen has to operate within the confines of the rules that the same the, the, the Trojan women have to follow as well, that the Greek women have to follow also. So, like, I think that that idea of Helen being hypersexualized or Helen having to use manipulation to get out of, you know, the trouble that she finds herself in, that's the only power that she really has that she can use and she uses yeah. it. And yeah. it's interesting because except for perhaps maybe Cassandra, she's the only one that kind of goes off like with a little bit of a sense of maybe it's going to work out for me, like implication being she and Menelaus are going to get on that boat together and she's going to like get him back over to her side. And yeah. Cassandra sort of goes off to Agamemnon kind of going, I'm going to, you know, slaughter them. And we, if you follow your Greek history or your Greek mythological history, what's going to happen there? Yeah. So like, yeah. I think that Helen exists as a different type of woman, but a very fascinating one nonetheless. But like, ultimately the women in this play like it's a celebration of them because they actually are able to articulate their experiences and articulate the way that they see their world but Euripides cannot get away from the fact that there are particular roles that these women have to perform like that they have to do he can't escape the realities I guess of his social paradigm yep because even though I mean I think the the word I quite like to use to describe him is a polemicist. I just really like that word because I imagine the North word. and the South Poles, yes. But that he purposefully sought to divide people with his with his plays, unlike some of the other Greek playwrights, and I'm thinking more like Sophocles, yeah. Aristotle, who who were wanting to, I guess, further the the social mores of the time and and endorse and reward those who subscribe to whatever was considered conventionally appropriate. He's such a fascinating playwright in that. Yes. Like you, you can't help but think, I wonder what the reactions to his work would have been, like yeah. originally when they were being staged. He never like, won, you did he? feel they're revolutionary almost. Mm-hmm. Like he skirts very close to, I think, getting into trouble because like he, he, there's not a character in the play, let's say, that comes out and overtly critiques slavery for example or comes out and overtly criticizes the social structure of the time so Euripides doesn't quite come out that far obviously because it wouldn't be a good end for him if he did do so however there are implications there like he lays it all in front of us and I think that's what makes this such a powerful play because not Mm. only does it give voice to the voiceless but it puts it onto the audience to say what do you think about this yes like how yes. far are you willing to go and accept what's being put down in front of you? Like, okay, if you, if you, for example, think that in wartime it's okay to have some damage, like it's understandable that you'll slaughter the male population because you have to kill them all to take the city or to get all the spoils, but are you okay with a toddler being thrown off from the battlements of Troy? Like how far are you willing to go as an audience member? How much are you prepared to accept? I agree. And even to further that, it's 
it's implied that the re- the rationale behind making the decision to murder Astinax is for fear of future ret- retribution, yeah. which suggests that I feel suggests that there's something wrong with the way that they've behaved in this instance. That, yes. Because he would only have a desire for vengeance if he had been wronged. Exactly. Yeah. So almost in murdering Astinax, it's confirming the culpability. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And just and it's interesting, like that it's Odysseus is the one that he convinces the council, let's let's do this. We have to. And he's known as being the smartest of the Greeks. That's what he's um celebrated for. So perhaps the implication being that this intelligent leader has got an inkling, okay, like they could rise up against us and the coin flips and now we're the losers. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it and I think it's so it's so easy for that, well, as as demonstrated by the play, it's so easy for that coin to flip and for the for the winds to change and the tides to yep. turn. Literally. Yep. <laughs> literally, yes. And for it to take 10 years for you to sail home and everyone dies. So yeah, there's this there's this acknowledgement there, I think, that that the behavior of the Greeks was was problematic. Which is so interesting if you think of the original Greek audience who are sitting yes. there watching this, like yes. while war is raging at the time. Yes. So you can't help but kind of go, I wonder how the audience would have reacted to that. And obviously as a contemporary audience, we have a, a different understanding. Like we come to this play, like nobody's going to argue in 2021 that slavery is, you know, a positive thing. No. The original audience are like, this is just part of our society. And it is such an interesting thing that there's sort of like this dual audience going on because we have to be aware of how the original audience may have reacted to this and what Euripides was intending or was we assume intending to do or what he was trying to provoke in them but we also think about our connection to it and our understanding of it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree and the the other thing I think about as you mentioned was at the start is how sad this play is Mm. someone I've spoken to before described it as as a lament not even as a play it doesn't have that traditional structure it's it's episodic it's fragmented there's no one you think about the way we teach a narrative structure an orientation rising action some form of complication a climax and a resolution Mm -hmm. it's just kind of complication after complication after complication after complication before it ends exactly without resolving yeah the Um, actions already happened before more actions going to have to happen after this is just the quiet in between yes like that profound human suffering yes the quiet I like that and there's no hero nope there's no doe machina that or that idea of the gods coming in at the end which happened often and fixing everything or providing Taking the women off to somewhere else and saving no. them. The no. gods aren't going to save us. I think Euripides makes that abundantly clear. Like what better imagery than at the very opening of the play when you have when you have Poseidon and Athena standing there yes. conversing about the fall of the city, not even the fall of the people, it's the fall yeah. of the buildings and of Troy. And yeah. we have Hecuba who represents all the survivors of this battle lying prostrate on the ground in the dirt. They don't yes. pay any attention to her. They don't mention any of the survivors, nothing. And they go, all right, we're just going to kill off the Greeks because they've displeased us and yep. we're just going to wander off stage now. And we were Never enemies. We yeah. were enemies just then, but because we're related, oh, now cool. we'll help each other. 
It's awesome. Cool. Yeah, it's forgiven. Cool. We're done. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad that you mentioned Hecuba lying on, on the floor, though, because I think, and there isn't a lot of stage direction no. in the play, but what is there is really important. And yeah. I feel like students can get a lot out of the fact that she, Hecuba, she commences yeah. lying face down and quite still. And at the, yeah. at the ending, she walks, she exits, and she walks out. She talks about the fact that her legs are trembling, but she won't fall, suggesting she she's upright up. and yep. walking off the stage. And the symbolism and there's of our that. resilience. There's yeah. our resilience there. Like another thing is when we're reading the play, mm. uh, yes, correct, there's not a lot of stage directions, but sometimes there's references to physically what Hecuba is doing often in the chorus yes. after Hecuba says something. It's often when something awful happens, I mean, it's all the awful things that happen in this play, but something awful mm. happens, it's described that Hecuba falls to the ground. Something mm. terrible happens, she falls to the ground. But what do we also see every time she gets back up? Yeah. She might say, like, why am I getting up? Like, don't help me. There's no point in helping me. But she always gets back up. And mm. Andromache, I'm pretty sure, when she meets up with Hecuba and she's on the cart and she gets off and they have that conversation, Andromache sort of is talking to her and Hecuba makes a reference saying, like, where there's life, there's hope, like sort of yes. runs a bit counter to some of the other things that are said in the play. But I do think that there's this thread under the surface of the of the of the play itself, sort of hinting at this idea of resilience, like that these mm. women still keep going no matter how horrible things are for them. They're the survivors. And in a play that doesn't really have heroes, like you're exactly right, like all the heroes, your Achilleses, your Hectors, like the men, the male heroes that were celebrated, they're all gone, they're all dead. But the real heroes are these women that are left behind that maintain their dignity, that maintain their strength, even though they are faced with the most awful things. Yes, yes. Yeah, like sure, do they have moments where they're afraid or they're terrified or like where their knee shakes of course like that's just part of being a human being but they keep going even the chorus I'm thinking now there's there's a point there and you can see it I think with the strophe and antistrophe or antistrophe again spell it correctly I don't mind how you say it <laughs> it's fine um but where they're talking about the chorus are talking about the fact that they're they're going to end up enslaved yep and then and that i imagine they're walking across the stage from from maybe from left to right and on the the, the return they're like actually i hear greece is quite beautiful and yep. they have this beautiful positive reflection i wish i could now i've talked about it i want to yeah they basically like talk about the different places in greece they're like i've heard this about here and this about here and they sort of imagining it's unavoidable they're going to be slaves there's a whole range like nursemaid concubine what have you like these are not fates that anyone's going to willingly sign up for but the true resilience of these women is that they're looking ahead at a potential future and they're going to carve out what they can from what's left over yes is that not the strength of women? I mean, yep. it just, I remember reading that and the, the first time through, because I the first time I have ever engaged with this text was reading it in written yep. form, which I think maybe is not always the best. It's lovely to watch it. I have, have since watched it performed and it just adds yeah. so much, I think, um, yeah. Yeah. to it. So we've got this amazing resilience from the women and 
I've heard, I mean, I've heard Rupiti's described as a proto-feminist. And I think it's important to say proto because that is, feminism did not exist in. No, folks, it didn't. No, it it was a kind of late 1800s conception that really only is was termed mid 20th century so yeah you can't actually call him a feminist because that idea didn't exist but proto-feminist meaning before like prototype yeah I really like I like that word so yeah we can I think we can call him a proto-feminist yeah in that he was advocating for the rights of women yeah through his he text. put them at the forefront like it's significant he put and I think something important for students to think about is like what's the significance of Euripides and he's taking this story that his audience have grown up with it's an age-old story there's not in terms yeah. of the plot like there's nothing new here it's it's what the characters are saying that's the most important thing so the the experiences that they're describing that's the most important thing but that idea of what students need to consider here is what's the significance of Euripides choosing to base his play around like air quotes the losers like you know why is he choosing to why is he choosing to structure his play around a group of women you know women who have been left behind, all the heroes are dead. So, like, what does that enable him to do? What does seeing war and the after effects thereof through the eyes of the defeated and also mm. through the eyes of women, what does that allow him to do that is different to what he would have done if he had have written it about the men? And lots. There are many different things about this. And I think what he's trying to do is he goes, like, all right, audience, Look at this through the eyes of the people that have been defeated. Look at this through the eyes of women. And it is quite modern almost in that sort of way. It's like flipping the narrative and going, okay, look at it through this point of view now. What can you learn? Yes. In many ways, he has done what we ask students to do in the creative task Mm. and taken a gap or a silence and filled it. Yeah, Um, 100%. The original original creative sack writer. (laughs) Um, absolutely i mean it does show the power of taking a perspective that has been ignored or silenced by a text and adding adding to it in some way yep and how rich is it when we listen to women or how rich does the narrative become when we hear those voices that have been long excluded absolutely Yes. yes on the topic of excluding exclusionary voices we do have Talthibius, and I wonder how does he fit in this? I mean, I, th- I feel like the reading we're presenting in this conversation is quite a feminist one. We're looking yeah. at the text with this feminist perspective. And I think that's quite powerful for students. I, I wouldn't want anyone listening to go, oh, well, even I'm, I'm a boy, so I can't read the text in that way. No, absolutely you can. Regardless of your gender or how you identify, you can present uh, a reading of this text that that, that demonstrates that idea that it, it provides a voice to mm-hmm. uh, a group that, that as you said, have, have been silenced or excluded. But then we have Talthibius, Talthibius. Yeah, I go Talthibius. Talthibius, we'll go Talthibius. Yeah. So, I mean, how does he fit into your conception of the play in regards to his role and function as a character? Yeah. So that's interesting. Like if we take that idea of obviously we are talking with a bit of a feminist slant and then we bring in Talthibius, who mm. is one of the larger characters in the play, 
that idea of exclusion is an interesting one because how I sort of view Talthybius is like if you look in the history of Greek um, mythology or ancient Greek playwrights, so often they are written about the kings or the heroes like your Achilleses or your demigods like Achilles. Talthybius to me is also an example almost of exclusion, not quite in the same way as the women, but Talthybius represents like your every man. So like one of my favourite bits of the play is when Cassandra has one of her long speeches and she's basically describing all the horrors of the war that have been visited upon both Trojans, but more so she argues, which is interesting considering she's a Trojan princess, she argues that more horror has actually been visited upon the victors, being the Greeks, and she describes that they were buried without the proper burial rites. They were away from their home for 10 years. They were caught up in a war that was more or less like a World War One alliance system. Mm. The ordinary guys, your ordinary guys just got called in because they were allied with like a particular king. So they weren't really there to keep away someone from coming into their homeland and stealing from them. They were there for dubious reasons at best. And all these reasons Cassandra gives for why the war was just as bad for the victors as it was for the people that lost the war. And Talthybius to me is that guy. He is like your kind of middle ranking guy that so often has been excluded from the narrative also. Like Talthybius is a messenger. Talthybius is someone that has to follow orders. Like an example of that is when Astyanax is about to be thrown from the battlements and he says to Andromache and Hecuba, there is no way to say an indecent thing. He knows that this is indecent. He knows mm. that this is a horrible thing to do. And I think the implication there is that he's struggling with it morally. But this guy isn't a leader. He's not a hero. He's not a champion. He has no power here. He has to go along with it. And he makes the decision to go along with it. So Talthybius, though he's a man, he is someone I think that embodies that idea of exclusion. Somebody whose viewpoint maybe hasn't been touched upon as much as your rulers or your leaders have. Yes. And it, it's interesting you mentioned his role as the messenger because I think traditionally in Greek plays, the messenger was a role that the messenger mm -hmm. would come onto the stage, but they would be called messenger. They would not be yeah. identified. Not even named, yeah. Or named. And their role, they often would retell something quite violent or they'd, because you wouldn't have that action on the stage. That action would often happen yeah. off stage. And I feel, yeah. this is just a little side note, I, just, I quite like words, it would happen like off scene or ob, OB scene and that's where the word mm -hmm. obscene comes from, I believe. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, good. so it's like it, was, it can't be held on stage, it's obscene. So that's why we say yeah. it's really awful. Yeah, cool, just, you know, etymology. Side Learn note. something new. Learn right, something every new. day. I, I, I yeah. really, now I'm I'm almost 97% sure that's actually true. I did read that somewhere. I didn't just make it up. I don't think so. We'll no. look it up. We'll look, we'll, it up. Up. we'll look it up. So, yeah, he is the messenger. and I, Yeah, so he, and, and the messenger role, my brain is now going like boom yes was silenced unnamed unimportant and simply a plot device mm -hmm. traditionally and here he is like here he, he is. has a voice he describes his experiences like he he mentions like we have been here for 10 years we want to get on the boat and go home like this is a guy that is representing all your like your lay soldier guys like they just want to get out of here like they're not they're not going to get the spoils of the women getting ransomed off that's going to all the high-ranking greeks like they're not yeah. going to get many of the riches fairly any glory for them so 
I think Talthivius is very much an example of that. The yeah. nameless, even though obviously this is it's a fiction, he represents, even today, he represents all those nameless millions of soldiers that have been lost in conflict whose stories are gone because they were part of an alliance system or someone in a war cabinet somewhere said, let's invade this country today, let's do that. The every person. Yes. So then if we take that, does that mean that so imagining this this Greek audience, this ancient Greek audience watching this play, is he almost, would Euripides have almost been wanting to get on side anyone watching who might be just an every guy, everyday guy in the army yep. and for him to see himself represented in this text as well? I think so because, like, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be easier for an original audience, and it would have been a male audience, wouldn't it be easier for them to identify with the Greek guy on the stage? Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, Mm -hmm. I see him. Yeah, like he has to do what his kings are telling him to do. He has to go along with it. Yeah. And a lot of morality, I think from modern audience, we look at Talthibius and it's like almost like Nuremberg trials for those of you that have done your history, like this idea of how much can you blame the dude ahead of you for accepting Like, you know, I think that so maybe your ancient audience would have identified with Telphibus. I think that a modern audience, a modern audience does as well. But I think that he represents sort of that, that male exclusion, for want of a better word. He represents that idea of sure, he has more power than the women. And he reminds them of that at points during the course of the play. But he's also a lot less powerful than your Menelaus's or your Agamemnon's or your Odysseus's. Absolutely, he is. That must be incredibly frustrating for him. Mm. I feel like I feel like you have you have encouraged me to perceive perceive him in a bit of a different way because mm. I think the first reading I had of the first time I read through Women of Troy, I was just really angry with him. Yeah. Because superficially, especially when you're reading quickly, all mm. he does is come on stage and say terrible things and follow orders. And I think and I, I yeah. and I thought to myself, well, why doesn't he just not? Yeah. But that wasn't a possibility, well, don't we, you know. Don't we all wish and don't we all imagine that if we were in those morally compromised situations that we would be the ones to go like, that's not right, I'm not yeah. going to do that. But hasn't psychology proven that a lot of the time we don't? Like we don't. it's part of being human. Like sometimes we don't feel comfortable enough in ourselves or in the situations we are in to stand up and take the moral high road. Maybe so tell this Maybe Talthibius trying to say to the women, look, you can't win this to Hecuba and to Andromache. There's nothing you can do here. The only thing you can do is not give us any trouble and then we might let you bury your child according to your burial customs. Maybe that's the only kindness that this guy feels like he can can give them. And I get that. Like I would love to be like I would love to in moral situations be 100% confident that I would always be the one to stand up and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a little Talthibius in all of us and maybe that's mm-hmm. the lesson that Euripides is trying to teach us. Like I don't think that he's saying or trying to suggest in any way that humanity is doomed or like we're inherently wrong or we're inherently evil. Like absolutely those things do exist within us. Like we are complex beings we have good and we have evil and we have all that within us just like the characters of the play but I think that he is making a he's making his audience hopefully reflect on this and think about where they stand if you don't like how Talthibius does stuff 
Mm. Maybe thinking about what he does will spurn you on in your next in your next moral crisis or thing that happens. Maybe unconsciously you'll go, well, I don't want to be like that guy. Maybe I'm going to be a little different. Maybe I'm going to take the risk and speak up yeah. against injustice. Yep. Yeah. But you're right. I think we all say we're going to be the one to stand up against what we perceive to be to be wrong in our world but it's a really difficult thing to do yeah and it doesn't mean that you never will like maybe a couple of times you don't but maybe another time you will and I think that I think Euripides is too brilliant of a playwright and this is too respected of a play for any of the characters to be lacking in nuance or lacking in depth. Mm. Like Talphibius is just as complex as your Hecuba. Like they're, they're all filled with all the, all the things that make us, yeah, they're all filled with all the things that make us human. They're complex beings, these characters. Yes. It's kind of incredible how Euripides manages to achieve that level of characterization in so few pages. Yeah, so sparse too. Yeah, yeah. Real masterclass, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, if you think of it in terms of the techniques he uses, it's the imagery, it's the metaphors, it's the descriptions, it's the repetition as well. It's how characters react to one another. Like you can really get a good sense of how we're meant to interpret these characters because there is, there's not, as we mentioned earlier, there's hardly any stage directions, Mm. but it's descriptions of characters about particular characters, like. Talthibius, I believe, is the one that describes the Trojans as these are a proud people, like these women, for all that they've endured, they're a proud, you know, they're a proud group still. Yeah. yeah. They maintain their pride throughout yeah. and their dignity. Almost, almost in spite of themselves, I think. Yes, yes, they find it deep, deep inside. You mentioned just then the metaphors and the description. I'd love to chat to you a little bit about that because I think often that's something that's a bit neglected in, in essays yeah. that I've read on women of yeah. Troy. It's I, hard. It's hard. And we're spending so much time kind of trying to break down the language and work yeah. out what's going on that yeah. we miss that. I know the the one image that I that really resonated with me throughout the text was this idea of, of the ship, the Hecuba yeah. uses. And then yeah. I think the, at some point she talks about we need to be the ship on the current and this idea of just letting things happen the yeah. way a ship would have to if it was navigating a challenging current. I, I really That really helped me understand, I think, her where she was in that moment and why maybe she wasn't as angry or riling against quite as much as I wanted her to be, and which I think, think speaks volumes. You think of that metaphor and you extend it out and it's like, well, isn't that just life and all of us really? Like all of us are just floating along that river and we just have to sometimes accept what's coming our way. Like we can direct a little bit, but ultimately like the currents are going to take us where they will. Like absolutely, the, you can't get away from the nautical, the boat imagery yes. like that. It's, it's just, everywhere frequent throughout the course of the play I think the other thing that stands out to me is Euripides' use of personification like particularly when it pertains to Troy like Troy for me is almost Mm. like a character unto itself like it is referenced so so lovingly so vividly by the characters like Troy almost becomes this 
character that's been defeated and slaughtered, you know, by itself, like the descriptions of the citadel burning, like the blood Mm -hmm. on staining the ground. Also, when the women are being loaded into the boats at the very conclusion of the play, like they're like, Troy is no more for the description of the city being burnt as they leave out. So like the use of personification, I think, is particularly powerful. I agree. I agree. And and now, Hecuba, and, and adding to that, creating a character out of Troy, there's quite a lot of like animal imagery yeah. throughout too for, I think especially for Hecuba. Yeah, it's totally. interesting that Troy, if Troy is personified and so given human characteristics and then Hecuba is anthropomorphized and therefore does that like kind of dehumanised in yeah. a kind of a like an interesting parallel that yeah your actual human characters are the ones akin to animals but yeah the setting becomes becomes human yeah it's really interesting isn't it like when you you look at the techniques that he's employing to build that sense of setting to build that sense mm-hmm. of characterization like i do think and another thread is like i do think that Euripides is using his language at times to show how the women are being dehumanised by the Greeks in particular and perhaps in the eyes of the audience as well. So, you know, it's... You mentioned Andromache coming in on the cart. I think somewhere I was reading. Does it say she's like loot or something? Like she gets referred to as loot. Like she is actually... Yeah. She's wheeled in on top of a baggage wagon loaded with yep. spills. So she yep. it's symbolizing she herself she's, oil. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah, and the women are so very aware of that. And it's not something like they they mourn it because they know that what they know what it means. Mm. But it's unchallenged, right? It's not like you have a character that goes like this is this is rubbish it's just accepted you lost the war everyone's been slaughtered no one's here to defend you you're going to become a slave in some way shape or form but I think the implication is there for the audience like if you're watching this originally Mm. can 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 everyone in an audience sit there when Hecuba and Andromache are lamenting the death of Astyanax, like, can you be okay with that? Like, I don't think Euripides is setting it up to go like, yeah, that's acceptable, that makes sense, he should die. Like, when there's description of Hecuba's daughter Polyxena having her throat cut, like, he, he takes this idea of people being reduced to property and by positioning the audience to see the play through the eyes of, you know, the property, how comfortable can we be with this idea? So, like, while he's not overtly coming out and going slavery is wrong and he's not coming out and going we shouldn't slaughter our enemies, I do think that because he's so clearly positioning us to hear these women and to view their experiences, he's setting up his audience to really question to really question the morality around war and how much they're willing to accept. And it's a thread that we pick up on on today. I think that one of the major things in this play is Euripides is making this, he's making the point that if we are unwilling 
to confront the worst aspects of human behaviour. If we're unwilling to look at this square in the eye, we're just going to be doomed to repeat it, which is part of history. Like those who don't study their history are doomed to repeat it. And so I think Euripides is taking this traditional historical tale and he's like, let's look at this. Let's really, really look and examine this. And are we going to keep going on like this? Like, are we going to be fine to keep going on this way? And it's almost like he's warning to future generations. Like, if you look away, how are we going to grow? How are we going to learn? Like, you can't just write the women off as property. You can't just write them off as losers. Like, they endure they go on their stories are still passed on like their lessons are still there to learn learn from like it's almost a shame that the governments of the world today are not heeding Euripides's warning I think (laughs) I agree I agree maybe we should maybe we should just send our leaders a a, a quiet selection of VCE English books for their perusal wow our future leaders out there like our year 12 students are reading these plays and that's part of the reason why we're studying what we study like we want our students to grow up as critical thinkers people who are able to consider things from multiple perspectives and to heed the lessons of history I suppose I agree you've almost answered my final question Danny you realize but I'll ask it to you anyway so this we've spent a lot I think we've dipped in and out of it throughout throughout our conversation today but I guess the big question is what's what's the point of Women of Troy and why are we studying it? So you're right, I've touched on it. I think the point of it is if we take it back to that place of Euripides doesn't give us any easy answers. Like as, as I've said a few times, he's not coming out and going, this is wrong, this is terrible. He refuses to let us out that easily. I think he refuses to let his audience out of the morality question of this play that simply. I think that the major point, the reason why we study this is so that we examine ourselves through the characters that he presents to us. Like I said at the beginning of this, at the beginning of our conversation, like haven't we all been a Helen? Haven't we all been a Talthibius? Yeah, they're all elements of what makes up a human being, the good, the bad, the ugly. And Euripides, I think, is using this play to go, don't run away from the ugly. Like, Mm. be prepared to face that in yourself and in one another and to challenge it and to learn and to grow and to hopefully gradually, even if it's not instantly, we'd probably all like it to be instantly, but can we do better? Can we be more? Can we learn? Can we grow? Can we keep evolving? And I think that that's one of the major reasons why we study this play and what the point of it is so it's let's really look at everything that it means to be a human being let's look at the victors let's look at the losers let's look at let's look at these big ideas and let's think about where you individual audience member or individual year 12 student read listening to this and reading the play where do you stand how do you interpret these characters what are you going to take away from this because it's going to be different from all of us and I think that's the genius of Euripides like I said he's not letting any of us off the hook easily we have to reflect and think about who we are, who we want to be, and what lessons we're going to take from this play. Thank you so much. That's so, <laughs> I think what what I like so much about this particular conversation is that we've kind of remained quiet.
quite broad throughout and then dipped down every now and then and picked up on something quite quite close and then come back out to that to that broad reading and yeah. that strategy zoom in zoom out you might have heard that's you what know. you're doing in your essays kids yeah. <laughs> yeah and like you said like almost a challenge to students where do you sit on this when you look at this play square in the face ascertain how comfortable are you and then from there develop your interpretation yeah and don't be afraid to look at it like it's hard it's complex there are difficult challenging things in there but so is life like this is just life encompassed in a play like don't be afraid of it the answers and the strength you need are inside of you oh I feel like I want you to be my teacher, Danny. <laughs> I tell my students that. <laughs> They're lucky, 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 lucky to have you. Honestly, I have learned things tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and for your insight and your wisdom and your refreshing perspective uh, on this text. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you did get something out of today, I'd love for you to support the show by donating a virtual coffee using the link in the show notes or on my Instagram bio at Teachers Talk Texts. I really love hosting this podcast and I want to continue doing it, but I do need your support. If you don't already follow me at Teachers Talk Texts, definitely do as I post updates about the podcast there, as well as other opportunities to learn more about the text in BC and English. See you next time. Bye. Bye.